Today's guest, Janaya Future Khan. I am of the diaspora. I see my struggles with all people of color, all black people, all Muslims, all oppressed people. I have seen the most remarkable, wonderful things about humanity as we fight against some of the most horrific parts of who we are. I am black, I'm trans, but I have a blue passport. I have never seen a more sophisticated system of apartheid. We're not fighting an administration. We are fighting a belief system, the imperialist, white supremacist, capitalist, Christian heteropatriarchy. Palestinian people understanding the system as the problem and not the Jewish people as the problem. It, it was essential that we kept that tradition of Black solidarity and Palestinian solidarity alive. We may or may not change things the way that we want to by the end of this. But what is a life worth living if not trying? Don't think about where the puck is. Think about where the puck will be. First hockey reference on this podcast. I've never said Wayne Gretzky's name into this <laughs> mic before. <laughs> Hello and welcome to episode 93 of the Palestine Pod, the weekly podcast where we break down the latest headlines dealing with Palestine from all over the world and bring you stories, commentary, and interviews with the aim of supporting the Palestinian struggle for decolonization, justice, and equal rights. I'm one of your hosts, Lara E. You might know me from Instagram as at Gazan Girl, and I'm joined by my co-host, Mikey B. What's up, y'all? Mikey B on TikTok, Michael Scherzer on Instagram, and you can call me Mikey Intifada if you just hosted Nazis in the place where Jews are meant to be the most safe. Before we get into today's episode, please like, comment, subscribe if you hang out with us on YouTube. If you're listening on a podcast app, subscribe and leave a review. As always, you can find our full episodes and sources on palestinepod.com. And if you want to get involved in the conversation, reach out to us at palestinepod at gmail.com and give us a follow on Instagram at the Palestine Pod. Find us also on Patreon, where you get early access to the Palestine Pod episodes, an additional podcast per week. It's called the Patreon Pod. We're also hosting our monthly Zoom happy hours with our Patreon subscribers only. So really exciting stuff. Check us out on patreon.com slash palestinepod. Today's guest is Janaya Future Khan, an internationally acclaimed public speaker, writer, model, and activist. Honored as Adweek's Social Justice Creator of the Year, Out Magazine's Out 100, and High Snobiety and Lists Next 20, Janaya's on a global crusade to change the conditions of our world through story, action, and now comedy. Called a young Chappelle by the LA Times, Janaea's tendentious, critical, and silly lens is as humanist and full of possibility as their work as an activist. Their debut memoir, If the Sky Should Fall, will be out next year in 2024. Janaea, welcome to the Palestine Pod. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for being here. So I have followed your career for many years, starting with activism, but most recently we ran into each other at the open mic at the West Side Comedy Theater in Santa Monica. You've been doing comedy recently. Please tell us about that. <laughs> yeah, I actually, I'm going to love these how did you meet stories in like 10 years from now, Mikey. I want to call you Michael so badly. I just need to call you Michael. I tried to be casual, but I'm just like, this is how I know you. And I like saying your full name now. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. So tell me whatever you want. I am. I'm a culture person. And I think that is obviously critical to activist work. I think it's critical to change work. And the the kind of mass mobilization that we've seen in the last 10 years is no longer as impactful or as effective as it used to be. So we've gone through Occupy, Black Lives Matter, Standing Rock, the Muslim ban, Families Bond Together, Parkland, Me Too. We have seen mass mobilization. And it's wonderful that people can come out on the streets. It's wonderful that people feel moved to action. But, and I say this with some level of like sadness because change is inevitable, 
it it doesn't do what it was meant to do anymore. And I think it has become this kind of knee-jerk reaction like this. Okay, so we're outraged. We go out on the street. And it's supposed to be towards a kind of long-term commitment. That's the goal, right? And it doesn't do that anymore. So my job, the the one that I have designated myself um, to fulfill, my job is to see where things are going, to be a almost like a fortune teller and to predict what the next fight is. And it's it's very much, you know, we're in the great battle of beliefs. We're not fighting an administration. We're not fighting a certain number of politicians. We are fighting a belief system. Some people might call it the imperialist, white supremacist, capitalist, Christian heteropatriarchy. We've seen these kinds of activations and movements all over the world. And I am a global person first. I am of the diaspora, and I see my struggles with all people in the diaspora, all people of color, all Black people, all Muslims, all oppressed peoples. And I understood that, I understood a couple of things. So if we could just talk a little shit for a second. If you ask me, do you want to hear a podcast from a, an activist? I'd be like, fuck no. I don't. <laughs> like, I all I do is hear activists talk every day. Like, I absolutely do not need that. But if you somehow could communicate to me that it would also be fun as much as it was impactful, I'd be like, now you got my attention. All right, what do we got here? You know, I think there's a lot of debate on what comedy was, who it was for. It was supposed to take on the status quo, now this, now that. I think why put limitations on it? You know, when the whole thing with Chappelle happened, I understand that there was a lot of, uh, is this okay? Is this transphobic? This is transphobic. He should. And I thought the only th the thing that was most offensive to me was that we didn't come up with those jokes first. That was what was most offensive to me. And so I saw where the conversation was headed. I see where we're headed in terms of movement. And I understood that expanding into comedy was part of, of engaging in directly in the culture war. It's one of a multi-pronged approach that I chose to do over the years. I also just thought, I want to have some fun. I want to tell the truth. I, I want to keep doing the work that I am spiritually called to do and expand it out. So that is ultimately what led me to comedy. Wow. At first, when I asked you about open mics, I was like, I don't know how this is going to tie back in. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> i'm good at that it's I'm good at that yeah that's wild because it's like it's actually similar to why i got into comedy mm -hmm. i used to work in politics i thought that i was going to make a difference through the system through the structure back when i was like young and naive before i was handing off briefcases full of money and i was realizing like oh this is probably not how things should get done and so I turned to comedy because I was like, you can influence people that way. You can make your thoughts known in a way. Like I was inspired by Richard Pryor, George Carlin, all of the people who really spoke truth to power. Also what you're saying about thinking about like the future, no pun intended. It's a quote that Wayne Gretzky's dad gave to Wayne Gretzky when he was joining the NHL. He said, don't think about where the puck is. Think about where the puck will be. Hell and yes. so, yeah. Very, very impressive. Got to be the the absolute first hockey reference on this podcast. By the way, I love. A We've sports, done ninety three episodes. <laughs> yeah. and I swear to God, I've never said Wayne Gretzky's name into this <laughs> mic before. <laughs> I was writing while you were talking because I was just capturing the sound bites. You know, anything that attracted me 
in what you were saying and and I filled like two pages already. <laughs> but I I, I want to go back to Laura likes to journal on the pod. <laughs> <laughs> no, that. it's just it helps me like process what you're saying. Like I just write the words down as they're as they're you know as I'm experiencing them. Yeah. And and I wrote work I'm spiritually called to do. So can you talk a little bit about that? It's it's a spiritual struggle as much as it is a struggle, as much as it is a concrete struggle that that is outward and that you experience in this life. But it's something that that is much deeper than that as well. It is. I've traveled all over the world. I've been to Palestine, you know, Ramallah, Hebron, Nazareth, Jerusalem. When there was a worker strike in Buenaventura in Colombia, I was there. When Aboriginal Indigenous folks, Black folks in Australia were rising up, pushing back against the gentrification of Redfern, I was there. You know, when BLM was trying to pop off in the UK, I was there. I have seen the most remarkable, wonderful things about humanity. Even as we fight against some of the most horrific parts, of who we are. I'll tell you this, we tried to lock the conversation down around privilege to help explain, you know, the ways that different people experience the world. I've discovered that there's only one thing that we all have in common. There's only one thing that we all share, ultimately as a baseline, and that's pain. It's the one thing, regardless of where you come from, what zip code you were born into, what kind of family, we have pain in common. And there's something really profound in that. I think that pain can be a conduit towards possibility, towards power. And I think it's got a bad rep, you know, like take envy, for example, like we're talking about this, you know, what, why I feel spiritually called to do this. Envy's got a bad rep, but I'm a, I'm a foster kid. I grew up in group homes and, you know, when I started high school, I was in a women's shelter. I haven't lived with parents since I was 11 or 12 years old. I, I think I have just cause to have a chip on my shoulder. I use that. I mean, I was raised by the world. You see that you hear the women's shelter, you think, my God, that must have been so hard. Those women were so good to me. They were so good to me. It was my first real experience of activism. And so I do feel as if I was raised by the world in a particular way. And envy gets a bad rep. But if it wasn't for envy, I wouldn't know what I wanted to be. I had big feelings and not big dreams. I didn't have much of an imagination. Nobody told me I could ever be anything or, or do anything. Or, you know, I, when I started to read the works of, you know, Mumia, Asada Shakur, Angela Davis, I thought, my God, these were such special people. And I understood that I was not that. Inspiration, motivation, those things are great, whatever, right? But they die. You know why envy is so fucking great? It hurts. When you see somebody do something wonderful, be in their power, they're never more beautiful than you know, no one is more beautiful when they're doing what they love. And when you see that and you want that, it's the things that you want are supposed to hurt a little bit. They're supposed to hurt a little bit. But envy is a perch, not a nest. It's supposed to give you a vantage point. It's supposed to give you perspective. And then you're supposed to use that, internalize that and move forward. And I think people get locked in the pain part and we adjust, we, we adjust the pain, we normalize it and we all get very, very, very small. I remember I was sitting with these social justice thing with a, with a network and um, some massive network, you know, and you have the showrunners, you have the writers, uh, you have the PAs, so you have the CEOs, the guys that green light stuff. And I talked to all of them individually not, a, they all communicated the same thing. We don't feel like we have power. And I thought, what? <laughs> like, this is, 
And so there's this thing, there's this universalness of the more pain that we carry, the smaller we feel. And so we project that smallness, even when it doesn't apply. And, you know, I've taken all of my life experiences as gifts. Like I, I mentioned before, I feel like I've been raised by the world. I feel like I owe a great debt to it. And so when I say I'm spiritually called to this work, I, I mean it sincerely. I owe a debt to every person that gave me a little bit of love in the most unspeakable, unexpected places. And I hope to spend the rest of my life paying that back. Wow. That was so beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. You went to Palestine. You went probably more places in Palestine than I've been. That to me, that speaks to my blue passport, right? Like I am black, I'm trans, I'm all these other things, but I have a blue passport. And yes, they put a little level six, you're never coming back here again. <laughs> when I, when I laugh. <laughs> uh, you know, the, you know, do you know what your last name means? You know, and all this stuff. But there was uh, for a little while, you know, Dream Defenders. IME put together like a thing where black activists were going and, you know, making connections with Afro-Palestinians, with Palestinians struggle and with some Jewish folks who were fighting back against 48 so that we could finally see for ourselves and keep that tradition alive. And so we could carry those stories. And it was, I have never seen a more sophisticated system of apartheid in my life. It's so sophisticated. In fact, that it's not even called apartheid. And so these systems of oppression, there's an intelligence to them. And they learn from each other, right? From the residential schools that Canada sort of designed, that blueprint that inspired Hitler, that, that Hitler blueprint that inspired South African apartheid and the South African apartheid that inspired Zionism. And so, yes, you know, it makes me sad, actually, how these disadvantages and advantages work so that I could have seen someone who would be considered more oppressed here than you. I could go back to your homeland and experience this more than you could. I mean, this is these are the contradictions that we live within. And I just need more of us to be able to carry these contradictions and understand that we're living through them so that we're not getting locked into the who has more privilege and oppression here versus there. And, and, and just understand that shit is complicated. And we just have to understand that like i just that what you just said to me broke my heart truly um no, well i, I mean i want to clarify i so I, I went back once um yeah. but it was it was complicated right uh, of course they didn't let me in right away and then you know when i was out it's you know it's like all the it's all the humiliation tactics that they try to do to make sure that you never come back right so the unnecessary strip search um the checking your clothes like dozens of times asking you for lists of all the Palestinians you know, asking you to draw um, a family tree of all of your extended family, showing you pictures of random Palestinians for hours and asking you to identify them, obviously, like who are, like you don't know who these people are. I don't know what it would be like if I were to try to go back. I'm not sure that I would get in again. Yeah, it's, it's also strange to be like, oh, well, I have access to parts of Palestine that my family's not actually from but the part of Palestine yes. I'm actually from I can't, can't go to. to anyway but but yeah the reason I asked was because I was curious to know having been to Palestine and and been to so many cities in Palestine and meeting so many different Palestinians probably doing all sorts of different things from all sorts of backgrounds working you know in activism and not professionals artists whatever it may be I'm curious what you would want people to know about Palestinians, having met them, spoken to them, gotten to know them, and maybe even kept relationships and, and friendships with them until now. 
you know, I know people that the, the the words, oh, you know, resistant and powerful and courageous, but um, I've never had such appreciation for coffee. I've never had such appreciation for birdsong. I've never had such appreciation for stillness, for understanding the beauty of a seed as a metaphor for legacy and what it means to truly love the land. Part of colonialist frameworks is losing this sort of indigenous humanist understanding of our relationship to land and ecology and our responsibility to that. And I mean, just that, I mean, we, I mentioned the sophistication of this colonialist system. It goes down to even ecological terror, right? Plant a bunch of pines so that the, the land is unusable. You can't, these, these like these foreign entities is literally making roots into the land. Do you know what has never, ne will never not shock me about Palestinians? The, the clarity on the absolute hideousness and monstrosity of the Zionist system and it's deep and the people the Palestinian people's deep deep empathy for the histories of Jewish suffering they hold these things and they never lose that they never lose sight of that and always always the stories came down to this is what hurt can become this is what suffering can become and there are so many Jewish people around the world that are against these kinds of practices and against these kinds of systems and those voices get drowned out. Now in Israel, you're seeing its own system turn against itself. The same kinds of uh, far-right extremist beliefs that are here in, in the U.S. And, 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 and trying to, you know, really, I mean, not trying to, you know, deep roots in Europe, et cetera. You're seeing a system of power consuming itself, you know, should the Supreme Court get to decide these things? Should the Supreme, who gets, who holds the government accountable? And, you know, it's so funny. I, I don't know if it was bold. I, I'm paraphrasing, I think, Baldwin or maybe June Jordan, but it's, it's something along the lines of if they're, if they're coming for me tonight, they'll be coming for you in the morning. Palestinian people have always held that line to me of understanding the system as the problem and not the Jewish people as the problem and a, 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 an unbelievable amount of empathy and clarity on mission and purpose. And I think that gets lost. I'm going to tell you something about these little Palestinian brothers too. I'm like talking 14, 15 year olds. I'm like, how do you all have fresh fades? Who's cutting your hair? Like, let me, can I get that? Can I get some of that? Like, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> it was just, these like this there is what gets lost i think in the, the the need for people to be to pay attention to the problems is that we're living anyway khalid gerard is still going to make art we're still going to sing we're still going to have deep connections with our family share meals together those things get lost and somehow these things survive even amongst the rubble the palestinian people regardless of, of space or time, will are permanent. There's a foreverness and a clarity on that foreverness. And that's something I think we can all take from. That just gave me chills. That like that Palestinian people are permanent. Like that just gave me chills. Like that, that you know, it, I, I felt like a sense of rootedness all of a sudden. Ordinarily, I don't necessarily feel that. I feel disconnected and uprooted, right? Because that is the whole Palestinian experience is to be uprooted and in diaspora, like, you know, you, you mentioned.
But in that moment, I felt connected again. So thank you for that. Of course. And Palestinian permanence is something that settlers could never burn. Absolutely. Like they'll try and get rid of the olive trees. They'll try and trap Palestinians in an increasingly smaller ghetto, but they will never get rid of Palestinians. There is a permanence there. And I felt it. I could see it. And again, it always comes down to this, this sort of metaphor of of seed. I met someone who was sort of collecting and preserving heirloom seeds. And the wonderful thing about seeds is they can grow anywhere. And the wonderful thing about the way the technologies that we've built and the ways that we have brought purpose to technologies is that we can cultivate and create the conditions for those seeds to grow anywhere in the world. And it's what Palestinian people are at the heart of it. There is a fractalness to Palestine and to the Palestinian people, whereas you, no matter how, to, to, it's like uh, the, the integrity doesn't die. So no matter how much you break it down, if there's even an, an um, iota of an iota, uh, an atom of an atom, it will grow again. Yeah, it's a tree that grows through the apartheid wall. Mm -hmm. When you said the wall, Michael, I, I actually remember the wall. Like I, I, I remember feeling and touching the wall. You're talking about the apartheid wall, not the whaling wall, because there are so, multiple yes. walls over yes, there. The, you know what I mean? The they got a, they got a lot. They love a wall. Okay. Yeah. The apartheid wall. You know, part of why this stuff feels so wrong is because it's not an intellectual wrongness. This is something that Fanon sort of talking about in, you know, Black Skin, White Mass. There's an essay in it. And he he is writing about trying to negotiate with this wrongness, right? Like he writes about, well, what if he dresses this way or speaks this way and he doesn't want to be this black person, but he is this black person, but then it has to be on his terms, but it can't be on those terms because he's negotiating this idea of blackness that's projected onto him, that is true, that is making him an object. And at the end of it, he is reckoning with the fact that the, that these systems exist through their illogic. They exist through their unreason and not, no, not unreasonable. Not, no, I mean illogic. It was something fundamentally anti-human, anti-life about these kinds of things that we see them and we literally cannot comprehend how this can exist because its wrongness is against um, everything that uh, everything that life means, that life of for affirmation means. And, you know, I, I remember I, I maybe in the early 2010s, I thought, oh, you know, let me study the right. Because, you know, my, I, I'm a rhetoric person. I love rhetoric. It's what I study. It's what I'm what I'm good at. It's discourse. It's, you know, foretellings. And I, I thought, oh, well, maybe I'm missing something. You know, Milo Yiannopoulos was the guy at that point. I thought, okay, maybe this is, things are going to be different. You have this flamboyant, charming, uh, but charming, you know, gay conservative that's sort of taking the reins by storm. What am I missing? I, you know, at that time, the right was really just starting to organize online in a new kind of way. I went down the rabbit hole and I thought... I'm going to get something out of this. I can figure out how to talk to these folks. And what I discovered was there was nothing there. I think because you know, we gave up so much power, like we're like, oh, the right does this better. The right does that better. They, And the truth is they actually just have so much more money. It, it, it ultimately always comes down to that. <laughs> but, you know, like 
some dickhead named Steve Crowder who no one, you know, no one's ever fucking heard of if you're not an online like hoe like, you know, I am right where it's like he 50 million to go to the Daily Wire. So it's, it's like, are you fucking, you know, it's that's the kind of money that they can work with on a on on a daily level. And there's nothing to be gleaned. The only thing that was consistent in my meanderings and in my research was that it was illogical. The entire thing was illogical. They don't like, if you present a fact or a concept or an idea, they just move the goalposts. And when I saw that wall, it was a physical manifestation of that illogic, of that unreason. It also reminds me of when you're talking about Milo, it reminded me of an article that I read where somebody wrote an op-ed where they're like, it's so hard to be gay and conservative in Israel. And I was like, yeah, dude, the fuck? Like, you ever used a grenade as a butt plug? You know what I mean? It'll up the stakes. Did I come or was that the pin like okay <laughs> i have something serious i could say too as well <laughs> i'm not just joke scott <laughs> uh, in your sunday sermons i learned so much from them thank you so much for doing those two points one that you kind of just touched on where you're like you talked about jordan peterson and how basically he was built up by the left because nobody knew who he was until the leftist made a mountain out of a man and that has stuck with me forever i swear i quote you all the time and the other thing is that it was during may 2021 when they were committing genocide in gaza and I was at a spiritual and an emotional low because I was watching people I know, people who I'm, you know, like I consider family at this point. Their lives were in danger. We were constantly getting updates. And, you know, someone from Lara's family actually did have a rocket in their house, like destroy their house. Oh, um, yeah. So we, it was a very tough time for all of us. And you gave a sermon about Palestine that... I needed at the time that like truly touched me in a way that I knew that you and I would be friends one day. And so I would just love for you to expand on what you were thinking in that sermon because it felt like, you know, also it was uh, a therapeutic vessel for you. It was. Movements are hard. If we're skinning it down to the bones, right, we're going past the muscle and the sinew, just to the bare bones of it. It is a bunch of strangers coming together because of a moment of pain. And you hopefully believe in something similar. That's all the movement is. And you're suddenly entrusting these people with your lives, with your hopes, with your pain. And I've had a lot of heartbreak in movements, a lot of betrayals. I would do it again every, every single time. Nobody is a monolith, but when you are a people with a history and an experience of each other, you are, it, the likelihood of you being bound by similar principles is, is higher. You know, and I got to experience this and say with uh, Aboriginal peoples and Aboriginal and Black peoples in, in, in Australia, right? There was a shared belief system, a, a small one, but it was there. You don't get that here in the West. The left is exceptional at coming together against a thing. We're not very good at coming together for things. And that's partly because we don't have any non-negotiables. And so I remember even when the Movement for Black Lives took a stance that was pro-Palestine and anti-Zionist, there was a lot of flack. I mean, we had very minimal funding at the time, but it was gone. And we were like, okay, <laughs> whatever. <laughs> Keep it moving. It was essential that we kept that tradition 
of 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 black solidarity and, and Palestinian solidarity alive. And even with all that, those wonderful, powerful stances, you know, I could see the limitations of what was possible for me in those movements. Was my best contribution on the ground. And I was on the ground, like I was on the, I was on the ground so much that I can't cross the US border now, even with a green card without a letter from the ACLU and an itinerary that lets me back in the country. When they pull me down into some weird secondary thing where they go through my belongings, ask me when the last time I was in a protest and strip search me like that's the kind of <laughs> I can attest that you were on the ground uh, because I saw you lead the, the march at Fairfax and Third with the indigenous <laughs> yeah. people. It was a beautiful sight. Yeah. Uh, um, and then I was there as well when the cops pulled up and kettled us uh, in that intersection. Yeah, it was. We had a good and time. And then, and then they treated us like it was batting season. Actually, yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they, I was like, "Are you guys trying to like join a baseball team? Like the Angels are not hiring right now." You know, in 2016, 2017, there were massive movement breaks and and yeah. BLM, and it was tough. It was really hard. There was a lot of insecurities couched in social justice rhetoric. There wasn't enough political education. Personalities had sort of grown out of it. And there was a lot of envy. Leading up to the 2016 election, there was a massive break in the BLM ecosystem around what the right strategy was regarding Trump and Clinton. And there were two, two factions, two competing factions. One, which happened to be a little bit older because remember we weren't old when i say so when i say older i mean like perhaps a little bit a couple of years older in age but also there was more experience in this particular body of folks so this faction was we have a responsibility to oppose the consolidation of power across the right by any means including engaging in electoral disruption. And then there was the other faction that happened to skew a little bit younger that said that any engagement in this fucked up system was a concession of power. And who could point to any, either one and say, this is the right word, this is the right way. What I couldn't understand is why couldn't they both happen at once? I was new to this country. I'm, I'm born and raised in Toronto and I moved here late around 2016 but you know by then i had you know we had our two convenings i'd met everybody it was not we were not a massive movement everybody hated us you know what i mean like it wasn't we were it wasn't 2020 like we were the most hated movement in the country and we had to love each other all the harder and but i had gone to this chapter and that chapter and this chapter and that chapter for this thing and that thing in minneapolis you know and you know baltimore for this thing and north carolina for that thing and and then we also had these you know convenings at the move for black lives so we were really getting to know each other but we just so you have a group of mostly strangers all with our own personalities our own interests our own desires our own hopes and dreams that are trying to work out this collective hope and dreams while the entire systemic apparatus is trying to destroy the thing that we're trying to do we were infiltrated we did have agent provocateurs these things are documented there was envy there were insecurities couched in social justice rhetoric there was a loss of perspective and these things happen in movements i think sometimes we forget how difficult they are and when I saw the limitations of, I don't believe that movements are meant to last forever. 
I think that they are supposed to push forward a particular agenda, a particular set of beliefs, do the impactful work, and then our job is to infiltrate other movements and bring those beliefs there. We're supposed to be like bees, but we leave the original hive and we go, right? Like, I don't know if you guys are Octavia Butler heads, but it's like in Lilith's Brood, there's this like alien species called the Owen Collie. And they essentially go to each, you know, planet where there's life and they, that's our job. Our job is to cross pollinate. And so I also wasn't as impactful as I wanted to be because I, I felt like I couldn't because I was new here and it wasn't my place to engage in a particular way. At the time, I was also visibly with one of the co-founders. I was in a relationship with one of the co-founders of the movement, which complicated things, you know, and that was its own, you know, situation. But by 2017, I decided I needed to leave, that it wasn't, I couldn't be useful in the way that I wanted to, and I wanted to infiltrate. And so I ended up working at Color of Change for two years. I, I did not have a green card, so it was really tough to sort of strike it out on my own. Also, I broke, you know, we broke up and it's like, who wants to be in their ex's movement? <laughs> like, have some dignity. You know what I mean? Like, I was like, ew. No. Like, I'm out. <laughs> Good day to you. BLM out the bio. No. <laughs> Good. I noticed that so many of the pedigreed activists had gone to Color of Change, the folks that I respected. And, you know, I wanted to win. I wanted to be on a winning team. Color of Change was doing cool shit at the time. And. I was like, cool, you know, so I did my two years there. I make it seem like I did time there. But what I didn't understand was this electoral system and how it worked. And I didn't understand the corporate apparatus and how. So I got a huge boost in education. Then I left in 2020. I made a two year plan. By then I had a green card and I thought, OK, cool. I'm going to figure out what I want to do. I have no idea what I want to do. I have all these feelings inside of me. I have all these ideas. I mean, this is going to sound like this is a humble break. Are you ready for my humble brag? It's a humble brag. In 20 fucking 20, early on, I was like, I didn't, I had no idea what I was doing. I just knew that I needed to, I, I had left my job. I had a little bit of savings. And I was like, if I don't figure this shit out, I'm like, I'm out of it. I'm broke. I'm, it's done. You know, I'm going to be couch surfing. And I wrote down one of the things that I wanted to do, which was I, I saw the gap. This is my skill set. I see the gaps. And I thought, there's going to be a huge crisis point with transness because we don't have a definition for what woman means in the 21st century. I literally, there is a Google Doc on my fucking thing in my drive that has not been edited since 2021. I said, this is going to be a massive issue because we don't know how to talk about ourselves. We refuse to talk about ourselves. And if we don't talk about ourselves, somebody else is going to fill those gaps. And and then Matt Walsh, you know, uh, last year comes out with his bullshit. What is it? What is what is woman or some nonsense? And I was furious, but it's that is a that is the tiniest thing. It's because I could see where the debate was going to go, and it was because trans people and the they keep taking from fucking these progressive liberal white organizations on their talking points. And if you just study black movements, you know. In the fucking 60s, okay, in the 60s, we as Black folks were like, we got to assimilate. We're the same as you. We're the same as you. We're the same as you. Let's whatever. And there was a counterforce that was like, no, we are not. Anyway, we tried it. Fast forward to now, and we understand we're the same as you inside, but our experiences are different. I think trans folks are locked in this assimilationist framework, which is like, we're the same as you. So therefore, talking about our differences 
is transphobic. If you say that I'm different from you, you are a transphobic person. And it's like, no, you fucking aren't. We are different. Like our experience of the world are different. I like to microdose testosterone. I like to take a little bit and put it so that my body functions in a way that feels more life affirming to me. Uh, that is a specific kind of healthcare you cannot get just anywhere. Construction that we have put on gender and the, the moralities we projected onto sexualities, it makes for a different life experience. And when somebody points that out, that is not transphobic. Our job is to create rhetoric and language and discourse to figure out how to talk about ourselves in a way that actually makes sense. Anyway, all of this shit brought me to eventually doing the Sunday sermon. Sorry, it was such a long fucking thing, but that's that's how it happened. No, that was great. Also, actual transphobes will be like, I don't understand why anybody needs a procedure for anything. Also, I'm booked in Turkey to get my hairline done. <laughs> this world is so fucking shitty. If you can find a little bit of love or a little bit of joy somewhere, do it fucking do it go for it and i do believe the vast majority of americans agree with that i think you can lose sight of it i think that these are coastal wars the folks in the midwest like ultimately have someone in their family who's gay or trans and have figured out how to live with it and talk about it without fucking jumping online and talking a bunch of shit regular people just want to live their lives and have a little fucking fun and be able to pay their bills and they should be all getting paid a hell of a lot fucking more in the uh, Mike, Michael referenced that um, uh, Sunday sermons and basically just a very quick synopsis. I, this is my, this is the problem with outrage because right now I think the, 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 the machine is focused on trans folks and, and the machine was focused on black people. Now it's focused on trans folks. It's going to be focused on something else. Outrage is exhausting for us and money for them. Like, I'm not sure we understand how this political landscape and ecosystem works in the online world. Like, it's so it's and I just want to break this shit down really quick. So the thing that we didn't factor in into BLM and that I think is not factored into a lot of things. I mentioned insecurity couch and social justice rhetoric. I think that we did not account for ego and social capital in how we did our our non-punitive framework. So I think we thought, you know, well, I mean, who it's a it's a human thing, you know. But I I think uh, there was there was some miscalculations on how important it would be to people. So I'm going to jump online and I'm going to generate this discourse, which I think is great. Again, to me, the answer isn't non-engagement. We live online lives. It's how you engage. And so you jump online and you get on this fucking thing and you get thirty followers. That's great. Are you okay if that means $30,000 into this dickhead's pocket? I just want us to be strategic about our outrage and how we frame things and how we position things and the ways that we keep turning on each other. Look, if you want to go after the right, I'm game. I'm fucking game. I do not care. But Michael says this shit and I decide that it's transfer and I'm going to I'm going to kill I'm going to kill Michael. I'm going to get my 30 followers out of it. Michael's dead online. I've said some shit about Michael. I said he's problematic, whatever. And I have weaponized my identity to shut Michael down forever. It doesn't matter that Michael's Palestinian. It doesn't matter if Michael's Muslim or anything. I don't, I don't know what, you know what I'm, but it doesn't matter <laughs> because I'm black and I'm trans yeah. and I, my shit supersedes your shit. This I like how it could have been anyone, but it was still me. I like yeah, that. Yeah, it it's always going to be you, Michael. It's <laughs> be you. Because, because, Michael's, because Michael's a man. 
And I'm not, look, I, I love identity politics. I'm not game for identitarianism. I, I think identity politics are essential into understanding each other in the world, but we do fall into identitarianism when it comes to the, the social capital aspect. And so for me, I think trans folks are falling into a trap of the outrage machine that is, and all we have to do is understand how it works in order to advantage ourselves in it, because trans folks truly are the anointers. I'm like, you could have all this time going after Dave Chappelle, who honestly, I mean, it did nothing. Like all it did was make him more popular. It just made him more popular. And there were two or three people maybe online that got 20,000 K more followers. Did that raise power for trans people? I don't fucking think so. So I'm glad for the people who were able to benefit by engaging, but you could have made Robin Tran famous in that time. A trans woman, Asian comedian who's been in the game for 10 fucking years. But no, instead you made Dave Chappelle more popular. And we, you got, we got two people who made a little bit of social capital. But again, nobody's at fault here. I think we fundamentally don't understand how the online and political ecosystem functions and how to actually win as a collective. The trans women in particular is extremely individualistic. It's hyper individualistic. And look, I, for all this time that I've been online, which is, you know, I, I'm a bit squirrely with it. I'm online or I'm not online. I've never once put my pronouns in the thing. And now I'm like, listen, this is where, this is where we're at. I'm talking a little shit, but this is where I'm like, now I gotta be trans. You understand? Like <laughs> I was happy to just have my gender be as fluid as fuck, but now this is where we brought ourselves. I got to be trans. I got to be trans to fucking fight this bullshit. And I'm like so fucking annoyed about that because I was happy just living my life as a full person, supporting this movement. That, But now I just got to be trans because I got it. When I get these hoes on the right who are coming after us, I need them to know that I'm trans when I do it. That's all I'm saying. Like They built a mountain out of you. <laughs> you know, I've just anytime you come up with a force there is going to be a counterforce. And the person who is there, if you don't understand the power map of, of what that person's base is, the demographics that support him, uh, the, the body of work, you create a mountain out of that person. It happened with Jordan Peterson because those young folks, again, I'm never gonna shit on young folks who, are doing, who believe they're doing the right work. But if you had looked at the ecosystem and if had somebody had broken that shit down, we could have got, and the other thing is this, I'm gonna just say this, and I need, and I'm saying this to trans folks, I'm saying this to everybody. I'm saying this to someone who has spoken at every obscure college you've ever fucking, you could look up online in the Midwest, like someone who has traveled the fucking world, someone who did this, like not just the activist work, but the work, the education work when we were still doing workshops and shit for, I have 15 fucking years of experience. You cannot force people to say and think what you want them to say and think. It is not enough. It is like black folks know this, all right? We were like, hey, stop calling us niggers. And they was like, no, nigger. You know what I, like you can't, <laughs> you can't force people to say and do what you want them to, what you can do. And what you can do is create a world and a, and you can create a position. You can create a community and make it so fucking irresistible, so fucking cool that everybody just wants to be a part of that and everybody wants to support it. But this work that we are doing, we're doing so much work trying to punish people and we are not winning at the end of the day. So maybe we should change our fucking tactics. I, that was great. Yeah. I mean, I think you're just talking about like being strategic, right? And assessing from the get-go 
leaving your emotions aside, what are we going to get out of this? What's the point of all this? Who are we trying to convince? And are we going to convince them? Is this rhetoric going to be persuasive or is it not going to be? Also, when you said movements aren't meant to last forever, I was like, whoa, all my romantic relationships have been movements. <laughs> yeah. How we love is how we organize. You know? <laughs> But yes, yeah, so this is what happens when I sit by myself for extended periods of time. I'm very sorry. I would have said all of those things um, much in a much like, look how right. Look, how, you can't see it if you're listening to this just on the pod, but my face is hot. Like, like <laughs> my cheeks are flushed. But part of what I believe, because I think it's so important to say this too, is my job is to address our gaps, uh, to see them and to use my, the skill set that I've honed, the thing that I, that that I bring to the table. This is what I bring to the table. I, I, but I'm the reason why I care so much is because I couldn't be more moved, more inspired by leftist people fighting against all odds to push back against the status quo that was never meant for them in the first place. I wouldn't be so passionate if I didn't actually see the way out and see how close we were to doing it. Um, to getting out of it. These movements, it's trans people today, it's going to be somebody else tomorrow. The minute that the, a lot of these like right-wing idiots, they don't even believe half the shit they're saying. It's about making money. They're, they have, they're, it's, it's very, it's, they have a lot of clarity around that. It's only about money. I heard Tucker Carlson voted for Jill Stein, actually. <laughs> it just always comes down to the money for these folks. And so the target is, the goal, the goalpost is always what thing can I say or I or can I generate to manipulate people? Anything to stop us looking at billionaires, oligarchs is basically what I'm saying. And they spend an exorbitant amount of money to ensure that we, because we, we went from, I fucking hate billionaires to what's their skincare routine? What books are they reading? Wake up at 4am, bitch to do what? Like to do what? No, like, you don't need to be getting up at 4am for nothing. What are you talking about? If that's if that brings you joy, go ahead. But we were like, oh, if I emulate this, if I do this thing, then I could be this thing too. And I'm just like, yo, I believe in the kind of anti-capitalism where we are equal. We were all fucking cozy. I'm doing my due diligence, right? I'm reading Utopia for Realists. I'm reading Thomas Picker. I'm like, let me understand late stage capitalism and capitalism. I'm reading Chomsky. I don't care if people like him or not. The guy fucking explains foreign policy like nobody else. Okay. I want to understand how the world works to take a title of the title of one of the titles of his book. That's my job. And it's also understanding how this online economy works um, and how it functions and how to win. I only care about how, to, you know, how do we win? And you see Candace Owens on, was it Variety? She had a profile in Variety. Oh, no, Vanity Fair. She had one of them. What is a V? Marjorie Taylor Greene does an interview on 60 Minutes. There is, it's, this is more than just the mainstreaming. These folks can become more neutral at any point in time they want. They can be anything that they want. There is a legibility there. You cannot say that for us. And it's not about them doing it better. Again, the entire system is tilted to benefit them. But there is a mainstreaming and a normalization of these really wild far-right characters. And who the fuck do we have? Hassan Piker? That's our guy? Like, this is not me being a hater. Like, you know what I'm saying? He's a cute little BB doing his fucking thing. He's, but that's the that's all we got? Are you, are you serious? Like, that's our... 
that because who are we propping up? Where are our equivalents? Where are our counterparts? And are we willing to actually support them? So I am in my power era. I have always been a person content to lay back and only address that which we're, we are missing. I'm realizing that in order for me to live my politic, I actually have to take up as much space as possible, but I'm not cutting up the due diligence. The reason why I'm going to open mics is because I believe in craft. I have read every fucking comedy memoir you can imagine from Alan Zwiebel to fucking Bob Odenkirk to Norm MacDonald. I watch hundreds of hours of comedy. I study the fucking craft. I've, I've read the comedy Bible. It's actually here. Like I, I, if I'm doing something, I'm bringing the same principles of organizing to anything that I'm doing. Part of the reason why I'm going this route is because I want to build with comedians. I want to know comedians. I want to believe in the crowd. I want us to do this thing together. I'm always going to be an organizer first, but it's an it's understanding that the job is to infiltrate and permeate, and it can't just be in lefty spaces. We have to go everywhere, and we have to be willing to go everywhere. And so I am on a crusade. Um, and I'm not just, you know, and again, I'm, it's great to sit online and yell at people. And you, I, I referenced that um, if everything works out, I will have uh, my my own show that comes out on a uh, um, on the largest podcast uh, network in the world, but it may not happen. And even if it doesn't happen, I will be fine um, because this is what I have to do now. I'm getting too old to run when shit hits the fan. You understand? Like I have too many supplements. I just discovered like CMOS. Where is it going to go? I need a fridge. That's just expensive. Like I'm not running anymore. I'm either going to go balls to the wall all out or I'm going to pretend to be Herschel Walker's illegitimate son. Like I've got two <laughs> options at this point. It's run or pretend to be Herschel Walker's illegitimate son. Like, <laughs> But we have to take up space. We have to understand the ecosystem better. And we have to work together more because, again, the trans movement is like, not the, by the way, not the, not trans women. They, they move differently. They have always organized in real time because that their survival has been incumbent on it. They actually have very deep, deep roots and deep community. And, and the, the LGBTQ community and the queer community does have deep, deep, deep roots. But there is a new online ecosystem and there are no rules. Anybody can, we will now dox each other because we don't like the person. We need some non-negotiables. And if I can, I need to do my job to help get us there. And comedy was actually just a part of that because it can't always be, you know, balls like yelling at folks about what they need to do or not do. And I also don't want to sit on a live stream for eight hours a day. I want to be in the world with people and I'm not seeing enough of our folks at the level, at the scale and at the platform that they should be. I am not the champion. I am the boxing gym, right? That's, that's what I see myself as. I'm, I'm not interested in being that. I'm not interested in being another individual. My job I want to be the boxing gym. It's to bring everybody on. It like the plat like it, I want everybody on all the time, talking, talking, talking. If this should, three days a week, and if I don't have a three day a week show with this platform, then I'm going to be online every goddamn day, talking about the shit, bringing folks on. Talk I want that. I we need that. We need that. Our success is incumbent on that. And what is success in this context? Look, great nations move at the pace that they do. We may or may not change things the way that we want to by the end of this. But what is a life worth living if not trying to do it anyway? Like that's that's who we are. We're audacious. I want to be proud at the end of it. Whenever it does end, it could end tomorrow. And I want to feel like I tried. And that's what makes us different. So 
we have a responsibility now to take up as much space as possible. But as Toni Morrison said, go where you're going and then bring your people with you. So right. actually, I want to jump on that boxing gym analogy. I, as a comedian, have been admiring your dedication to comedy, right? I've run into you multiple times at open mics. I see you on flyers and stuff, and I see that you're putting in the work. I actually remember you did a set at Westside the day of the shooting. It was a, a trans shooter, and you addressed it. And <laughs> I thought, I was yeah. like, I'm so sick of hearing people who look like me talk about it. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so when you addressed it, you had a great joke. It came from a perspective that only you could provide. I did not fully understand that I'm a leftist comedian. Just, just like, yeah, I came into this very open and I don't take titles. I, I do the work and then I but I thought, oh, am I going to be the comedian that's talking to these white guys? Am I going to be this kind of that has to walk a line that's a little bit this or that? And, and I was like, no. I, and so that day I was so frustrated and I just saw what was happening in the news. And I took all the pain and frustration that I felt at how we had to defend this and that and the other. And I put it in this joke, but I didn't understand how good the joke was. <laughs> and so this was actually at the, I did an open mic at the Hollywood Improv and I I didn't expect to get picked that day either because who gets picked at the improv? I fucking did that joke. And then I didn't, ex I didn't know what response I would get. And then I fucking bombed for the rest of the three minutes. <laughs> so, <laughs> because I didn't like, I didn't know it was here. And if you, if your first opening joke is like top notch, you, the rest of your set has to be fucking top notch. And I started out at a hundred and then the rest of my jokes were like 60 and I didn't, but I didn't know it was a hundred level joke. Because it had, I had just written that joke last night, went to the improv to do my due diligence, to be around comedians, you know, that's where I saw Michael and I was like, great. I and also saw that set, but I wasn't going to bring it up on the podcast. I no. was going to mention the one where you were funny, I, <laughs> like for the whole time. <laughs> um, and so I was like, not expecting that. And, you know, I struggle with three minute sets. I'm great at six and up. I really struggle because with three minute sets, then you've got to have a clarity on the joke that you're going to tell. It's tight and I don't like doing it, which is why I have to keep doing it. I've, That's I've, the boxing gym. Yeah, I refined the joke and I actually hit it last night. And like, it's so interesting because now I have two, I have two shows before the end of the month. And then I'm at the improv opening up for Alok on May 3rd. And Alok oh. is Alok, so the, the show is sold out. And um, it's it's great to see people take different tactics or whatever, but... I'm going to hard launch. You see, it's not really on my profile. I'm going to hard launch comedy in the fall because I expect, based on my own predictions and the level of work that I'm putting in, that my comedy will be at a level that satisfies me. And only then will I start to really push. And by then, I will have a proper community of people around me. The things that you need for craft and for experience and hold you accountable are years and peers. And, you know, they, that is the, that is expertise, years and peers. And because we are living in a hyper-individualistic kind of way, and it, I see it now, I see it in some levels of comedy, not really. There's a really robust community there. But the age we're in really pushes and promotes individuality and personas and personalities. And um, I want to bring something different to the table because that's just my belief system. I'm really fortunate because the opportunity is to kind of 
work the craft that uh, keep coming up. But in the fall, that's when I'll really start pushing it. And hopefully, as long as I can make comics laugh, I'm pretty satisfied. But that shit was so funny, Michael. Like, I I walked away being like, first of all, I was mad as fuck because I like doing well. I was yeah, mad as fuck. Of course. Um, and then, but I was, I was also like, oh, this joke is really fucking good. The other thing was I didn't tell folks that I was trans. I sometimes forget that people, I don't know what people see when they look at me because I stopped caring a long time ago. And I think if you're saying a joke like that, all my jokes are pro-life, but not the anti-abortion kind of pro-life, like pro-life affirming. And like, again, I'm a lefty comic, but that was actually the moment when I fully understood that I was a lefty comic. And so there are certain things that I have to spell out for folks, as in, I am trans, I love our community, da-da-da-da-da, and the whatever tiny little piece of shock jock that was in me, which wasn't on stage, but if it was in me, I killed it that day. Because anytime that I, I was such a learning experience for me to, you know, so when I do launch or push or whatever, whatever that means, I'm not sure what it means yet. I think I want to do a really big show. We'll have a good audience. You know, then I can bring Michael out. I can bring this person out. We can do these things. And and I will introduce the world to me as a comedian instead of, you know, soft launching that I've been doing. But again, like this is this is why I'm doing it so that I can fully understand who I am and like what I what I bring to the table, what my responsibilities are. Because in that moment, I just went with it and was not fully in front of my beliefs and like I always am in front of my beliefs and so I took so much out of that moment but it was so fucking clarifying and I'm just like thank god I bombed because if I had done well I wouldn't have understood I was not responsible on stage it doesn't matter if the joke was good I wasn't I didn't bring the level of responsibility that I wanted to I'm excited for you to see the joke now but that shit was mad funny because there's nothing funnier than fucking bombing and it's like (laughs) start out at 100 everyone's like Holy fuck, like this person went there, this shit's hilarious, also scary. And then to be shit, <laughs> like for two fucking full minutes. <laughs> and I didn't even know where the light was. Like it was so bad. Mm, yeah. Oh, <laughs> uh, it's the way bombing, you learn way more from the bomb, <laughs> but uh, doing well feels better. So, <laughs> yeah, 100%. You touched on something earlier where you said that when. BLM had to make a decision on what to say about Palestine. It was so obvious that Mm -hmm. what needed to be said. And I was just wondering if you could touch on that a little bit. Was there any controversy in the organization? Should we do this? Should we not do this? Was it a unanimous decision that was driven by? Yeah, that's so cool. That is so fucking cool. Yeah, there was no, there was no question. There was no hesitation. And this is why I juxtapose these two things. It's like one was about ethics and beliefs and the support of oppressed people. And then what broke us in a way was trying to navigate the best way around a, a profoundly unjust system and how to work that. And so it doesn't come down to beliefs at, at that scale. It, it's just like an impossible, we were in an impossible situation in a way. And that is organizing. It's failing. Activism is just failing in public, which is why comedy and activism work so well together. And it's actually being proud of, of those failures. It's understanding that even if two people are now thinking differently, that that's a fucking win. But in all the things that mattered, we were completely unified. Yeah. It's when you talk about failing in public, it's about embracing the bomb and the lessons that come from it so that you can be a more effective organizer, (laughs) a more effective comedian. You need a very, very good sense of humor for both. And, you know, I think the joyful moments, like I, I, 
love BLM. I love BLM so much that I dedicated a chapter of it in my book that'll be out next year, but it was hard to write about. There was a lot of pain and a lot of sadness and a lot of joy. And I felt this responsibility to tell people the story of BLM. There was a movement, an entire movement that happened before people were saying Black Lives Matter in 2020. And by the time people were saying Black Lives Matter in 2020, in my, it is my opinion that that movement was dead. There was one active chapter here in LA, and then there was one co-founder and a bunch of PR firms. And that was it. And when it came down to these are my beliefs. I'm not speaking as a movement, but this is me. This is all me. If you ask people to listen to what you have to say, and you ask people to believe you, our job is to be the cover for those people so that when Uncle Bob says these people are stealing money, you know how to refute that. And there were monumental failures of whatever was left of that movement to address those accusations. Well, a large sum of money came in and there weren't people to move it. It was $90 million. No idea of how to tell that story or the kinds of transparency there. Did anything nefarious happen? Not to my knowledge. Don't believe so. I believe there is a large chunk, that was a large chunk of money that was just sitting in an account because nobody knew where to put it. Because again, it was a husk. That being said, you know, nobody was like, oh my God, the ice bucket challenge. Where's that 120 million? Three weeks later, that, that is only reserved for Black people. Pentagon regularly publishes reports where they're like, we can't find $3 trillion. Dollars. Yeah. You're like, I think a Black lady bought a house i don't like it you know yeah. what i mean it's like uh, and she okay. was she was extremely commercially successful on her own she had a tv deal with warner brothers she was fucking uh she had a best-selling book that patrice was making money on her own like she th that shit was wrapped up in some entity like she couldn't use that she couldn't use that money but was she one of the only people who knew where it was yes and if you ex if you accept the cover of time you have to accept the responsibilities that come with that again though who would any of you be if the entire history of American racism was pointed at you? Who the fuck would you be at the, the impossible circumstances that only a black movement would experience? Leaders fail all the time. Failing is part of the job. But for if you are black and you are queer and you are dark skinned and you are larger and you are femme and all these other things, everything in this country, including the people who look like you, some of them will work to eviscerate your ass. and. Not everyone is cut out for that level of, and that's not a that's not a failing of the the individual. I mean, I don't know who is cut out for that, but for me, I will always defend Patrice because I have my own stuff with that girl. But kinds of trauma and abuse that she suffered politically from her own movement, sometimes from these rabid bigoted dogs. It changed her. And she became, it was very King Lear in that she became very insular and paranoid as you would be when people are saying that they're going to kill you and murder you and they know where you live and they're showing up to your home and, and everything else. And how, who she could trust, it became so tight that, 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 that talking, I think she made the shell so tight that talking became impossible. Nobody seems to get that. And yeah, it was a, it was a very difficult moment. And I felt like my hands were tight. I mean, my, my address was leaked. My house was on the cover of the New York Post. I learned about properties that I had been implicated in that I didn't even know exist. And I had also been deceived about existing. And it was, I was couch surfing. I don't have resources uh, like that. I don't have protection. But by the way, like I am my own weapon, but like I'm fucking dangerous. Like I, <laughs> I, I got my blue shorts and Muay Thai. I'm a, you know, I am a competitive boxer. Like I'm okay with violence. I knew I had to leave my house. I mean, I wasn't a primary target. I was just used as like a homophobic thorn to jab at this girl. But 
I was couch surfing and everything else. It was a hard, 2021 was one of the hardest years of my life. It took me 2022 to recover and to make a plan so that I knew, to, to make a plan that satisfied me so that we would never lose power like that again. Comedy was one of those things. I will never lose power over my name again. And I will make sure that when this happens again, and it will, that we have an equivalent platform so that somebody can tell the truth in an environment that feels like it is conducive to actual change. Folks, that has been another episode of the Palestine Pod. I want to thank our guest, Future. Thank you so much for being here. Your <laughs> insight, your work, your stories, everything that you're doing, just even seeing you out at the mics and stuff, like it warms my heart. And we so respect you and we applaud all that you're doing. I appreciate y'all. Thanks for having me. You're real ones. Yeah, thank you so much. Folks, that's been another episode of the Palestine Pod. Thank you all so much for listening. Go ahead and find our full episodes and sources at www.palestinepod.com. Follow us on Instagram at the Palestine Pod. Send us an email, palestinepod at gmail.com. And look for us on Patreon, www.patreon.com slash palestinepod. That's been another episode of the Palestine Pod. Thank you all so much for listening. Have a great day.